525,600 votes for another round of questions. This week, it's been one year since the new council was elected. We'll take a look back at what they've done or not done. Plus updates on the police funding formula, Latchford, and neighborhood renewal. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 195, where this new council, majority of which are newcomers, are celebrating one year of being elected. We, of course, on Speaking Municipally, have been engaging through the hell of following council for <laughs> over four years now. So uh, have fun in the next three, councillors. I can tell you, it only gets to be more of a slog. On to the rapid fire. The city of Edmonton has opened two new indoor fields at the Edmonton South Soccer Center in a project that was funded to the tune of $20 million from the city of Edmonton and $9.5 million from the Edmonton Soccer Association. In a release, Ron Orr, Provincial Minister of Culture, said his government was proud to support this project, which will facilitate community development, recreation, and mental health, all of which he indicated were priorities for the Alberta government. Like with all Alberta government priorities in Edmonton, however, the contribution was less than 2% of the entire project cost at $500,000. Amos Weeb, an Albertan photographer who captures wildlife on camera, said this week that he thought he had seen a raccoon up north near Grand Prairie. The video of the creature with sunken, dark eyes scurrying on the ground and eating trash, acting like a harmful, invasive species to Alberta, certainly looked like a raccoon. But upon closer investigation, it appears Mike Nickel has just moved to Grand Prairie. The Alberta government is trialing a new type of holiday. Where most holidays occur annually, the UCP government is trialing a new schedule for a holiday that happens every third day, forever. The scheduling of this holiday should align with Danielle Smith walking back and non-apologizing for the comments she made on the previous holiday, three days prior. Unfortunately, with a $13 billion surplus, there isn't enough money in the provincial coffers to make it a paid stat and also give $13 billion to Daniel Smith's newest GoFundMe, but the Premier assures Albertans that they can just celebrate by taking an unpaid sick day, since they should be going to work if they have COVID anyway. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported, and this episode is brought to you by the Well Endowed Podcast by the Edmonton Community Foundation. It's hosted by Andrew Paul and Lisa Pruden, and it explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The Edmonton Community Foundation helps people create endowment funds, and the podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. You can subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Mac, first up on the agenda, it's the first anniversary of the new city council. Just over a year ago today, the vast majority of newcomers were elected to Edmonton City Council. And there's been many a take published, many a celebratory tweet published. And I just want to start off this discussion acknowledging that we have criticized this council on this podcast before for poor agenda management and for asking too many questions, e.g. the title of this episode. <laughs> but my hot take on this is that this council has actually done quite a lot this year and has accomplished a substantial amount. Well, let's dive into that a little bit more. You're right. It's the year anniversary. I have to say I liked the mayor's take on this uh, celebratory post. He didn't celebrate a year. He had a big gold 365 behind him, these balloons that said 365. Uh, so nicely done, Mr. Mayor. Nicely and creative. 
I was surprised to hear that you you think this council has accomplished a lot, Troy, because I seem to recall over the last year of podcasting with you and paying attention to the city council that we've talked a lot about how things get delayed, meetings go much longer than they should, you know, things kind of get kicked down the road, the can gets kicked down the road. What what comes to mind for you and when you think about like how much this council has done? Well, first, I would say that if we're using kicked the can down the road as a metric for council accomplishing or not accomplishing anything, no council has ever accomplished anything. Every single one of them kicks the can down the road constantly. Uh, mm. That was a criticism of the last council. But specifically with this council, I think while we do see a lot of reports being kicked to the next meeting because they ran out of time and we see a lot of debate about procedural cruft and that causes delays, I think what we're not talking about there is the increase in workload that council is creating for themselves. Because at a city council meeting, many of the reports are generated by administration from running the city, they give council an update, or they ask council for feedback, or they ask council for direction. And that's where a lot of the reports are generated. But of course, there's also reports generated by council motion. Councillors can make a notice of motion, they can ask administration for reports to report back, they can ask administration to do work, all of which comes back to council and gets debated. Even Councillor Tim Cartmel has complained about this council generating a lot of reports. He talked about staff time being taken up with this council's infatuation with generating reports and asking for more work. And I think a lot of the work that we see on council overloading their agenda is of their own design because this is a new council with big dreams who wants to get things done and they are pushing for it, perhaps pushing past their limits. I do think that leads to some of the delays that we talk about on this podcast. It's not necessarily that they're dealing with the same workload and being piss poor at agenda management. It's that they are creating increased workload on themselves to get more of their dreams done and being piss poor at agenda management. <laughs> well, that is true. Yes, I think they are still not very good at agenda management. My take on this would be slightly different. I've been writing you know, council summaries for years now. I'm going to go through every report and summarize it for you. And you can get that in the pulse every single Monday at Tapper Edmonton. And I just have to say anecdotally, Troy, it doesn't feel to me like there are more reports than there's ever been before. You might be right that maybe councillors are making more inquiries than they have in the past. But the amount of stuff that comes to a meeting feels roughly similar to me as it has in the past. We should look at the data to be sure about that. One of the things that I think is quite different about this council is uh, because there are so many new folks, it doesn't feel to me like the returning councillors, the more mature councillors, have done a very effective job at shepherding those people forward into being productive on council. Now, I am on the outside looking in, so I recognize I don't I don't know all of the things that are happening behind closed doors. Maybe I'm way off base here. And if you're a counselor and you're listening to this and you're offended, then you should tweet at me and tell me what why I'm wrong. But it seems to me that the new counselors have been able to try to take their agenda forward, try to ask for these bits of information, try to make motions at counseling committee, all of which looks good and is I guess, being busy and doing work, as you say, Troy, but it hasn't actually been super effective. I feel like the backdoor conversations, the hallway conversations that previous councils seem to have aren't happening with this council. So when things get 
brought forward to committee or, or to a, a council meeting, they haven't been developed. They don't have buy-in from their colleagues. There's no sense of whether something's going to move forward or not. It feels very much like uh, many of the new councillors are trying to individually push these things forward without realizing that you need seven votes to get it done. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm kind of pointing the finger at the returning councillors who maybe could have been more forceful in giving some guidance. Now, I recognize they're outnumbered. <laughs> so maybe <laughs> Maybe they didn't want to do that, but I, I think, you know, they could have helped shape it a little bit more. And maybe that's more on the mayor. Maybe that's the role of the mayor to set the tone for council. I hear what you're saying. And I think that you have identified the correct symptom in that council is coming at this from very disparate individualistic approaches. They're not doing the necessary backroom meetings to get consensus. And I think of no better example than the 102 of pedestrianization, where right up until the final vote was tallied, I had no idea how this was going to go. But I think your assertion that it's because the older counselors are not necessarily shepherding the new counselors may not be correct. And I think you need not look further than someone like Michael Jans, for example, who is a new counselor, but would probably staunchly reject any advice from counselors ancient because of... (laughs) But even then, I think of the dichotomy between the two police commissioners, Sarah Hamilton and Ann Stevenson, who Sarah Hamilton, I think, is fair commentary, has not levied any criticism whatsoever towards the police in this term. Whereas Councillor Ann Stevenson in the police commission talked about the need for a different format for more accountability, for more openness, came onto this podcast to talk about it and really went to bat for it. And I think what we have here is small c conservative older counselors. They're not necessarily right wing, but if you look at the motions and you look at how council votes, the current set of long-term sitting city councilors tend to vote against substantial change. Yeah. They are protecting some of their old decisions that new council is relitigating and even on new motions like Aaron Rutherford's motion about reducing police funding, you found pretty well along old council to new council lines how the vote went with a couple people flipping back and forth. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, it, we should we should keep in mind that these are 13 real people who have things going on in their life aside from council. And so maybe their opportunity and their moment to really dig in and get involved is, you know, different. It, it ebbs and flows, right? It goes up and down depending on what's going on in their world and in the world. And we should remember that this is a a four-year term for council, right? So maybe we'll start to see, you know, as you mentioned, Sarah Hamilton or some of the others who have maybe been a little bit more quiet compared to the new folks, you know, start to to pick that up again once we get past the relitigation of decisions that they might have been involved in in the past. And I think a good example of that could be coming right right up, right, with the the next four-year budget, because this is... To the extent that they have the ability to approve new funding, a lot of it's already been accounted for, this will be an opportunity for them to really start to set an agenda for something new rather than, you know, just, uh, you know, questioning things that were done before or, you know, tweaking a budget that the previous council approved. So, like you said, budget is coming up and council will have some money to play with. Of course, what happened a couple of weeks ago with the approval of a one-year police funding formula will limit council's ability to actually do things radically different this term. The mayor in his look back at the first year has been talking about challenging the status quo. And I take the point that they have asked some hard questions about the police commission and the funding formula. But here we are, Troy, 
with a funding formula that guarantees more funding to police in 2023. So this was a decision that was made on October 7th. We had prognosticated a little bit about what might happen, and we were kind of right in that they didn't approve the funding formula for all four years. What ultimately happened that day is council approved a funding formula that was put forward by administration with very slight modifications for just 2023. So they had already decided that the police were going to get a base budget, $407 million next year. The funding formula that they approved pretty much guarantees at least $7 million to police for 2023. So their budget will go up to $414 million. There's some other things that could impact that number to go higher. It's not going to go lower. And then instead of approving the following three years right away, council has asked for some options back from administration on how to modify that formula. So they want to see salary settlements and things go into the formula. They want to consider options for you know something more akin to the former formula's efficiency factor that council gets to set, You know, maybe even including some other ways to uh, adjust the amount of money, maybe based on performance or other things. Not all of those ideas, I'm sure, will go anywhere. But you know, to the point about council looking for more information, they've asked for this report back. So the idea is that early next year, they'll look at how they might be able to tweak that formula for subsequent years. So all of this means it's very likely that we are going to continue now to have a funding formula in Edmonton. It'll just look a bit different for the next three years than it does for 2023. I want to talk a little bit about the funding formula because you had mentioned in your comments about budget that council may not have as much money to play with as they may have hoped. This funding formula is a huge component of that because like you said, it guarantees around a $7 million increase to the EPS. Okay, so that's a start. That's $7 million out of the budget that council doesn't have for other initiatives. There's also the uh, Healthy Streets Operations Center. Councillor Andrew Knack has indicated that this additional maybe $7 million increase, that shouldn't be in addition to the Healthy Streets Operations Center funding. So around the 4 to $5 million that would have been going to the EPS for that operations center, that would quote unquote, come out of that 7 million. So, you know, maybe it adds another 4 million to this budget. Maybe it doesn't. But there's some other components that have gone relatively unnoticed. And that's one that the EPS is running a $4 million deficit. Where's Mm -hmm. that money going to come from? That could be another 4 mil. But then the big one is a thing called salary settlements. And this was a wonkish word in the report and kind of went under the radar and was just sort of assumed to be accepted by administration. But salary settlements are when you're in a union negotiation and the union negotiates a raise to the police. And labor is the biggest cost to the Edmonton Police Service. So if the Edmonton Police Service gets a raise, that is not included in the base budget funding formula. Council is on the hook to immediately give that money to the EPS. Okay, maybe they're going to negotiate a 0% raise for the police. I think if you look in the history of Canadian policing, I don't know that that has ever happened. If it has, it has happened very rarely and very infrequently in the city of Edmonton. But the EPS is also working on an expired contract. Their negotiation ended around 2020. So coming up in 2023, if there is, let's say, a 1.52% raise to police officers, which wouldn't be out of the question, that may well be back-processed three years. So that could be anywhere from 2 to $25 million that city council is additionally on the hook because they've approved this funding formula. And the mayor was quite 
concerned about this. He was one of the people that was pushing for salary settlements to be included within the amount of money that uh, the foreign new formula calculates rather than, you know, being something separate, as you say, that could come on top. So I think that's an important point that you raised. There's that one that didn't get a lot of discussion. And then the other one that didn't get as much discussion during, you know, this conversation was something we've talked about before, which is the photo radar funding, which is already now baked into the $407 million budget. So we are going from $385 million in 2022 to 414 in 2023 because of the funding formula, but also, you know, baking that photo radar funding into the base budget. So that, you know, significantly reduces the amount of money that council has for other operational activities. And if you're thinking, hey, you know, maybe the UCP might turn an about face on photo radar, do remember that Danielle Smith is now the premier. The majority of this council has indicated that they want to freeze or cut the Edmonton Police Service budget. I would say if we were grading their first year performance on this file, <laughs> would not be aces. No, definitely not. There's one other thing about the funding formula that I think is important to mention. And the, the only cap that is inside the funding formula, as it's currently defined, is this ratio between the police budget and the city's operational budget. So what they do is they take the total amount of money that the police service spends, so not just the tax levy part, but the total amount, so like $485 million, and they divide that by the amount of money that the city spends on its operational departments. So not the total $3 billion budget, just the parts that are about operating the city. And so that works out to about $1.6 billion in 2022. This is where they get the 30% ratio that they're talking about. And what they basically said is that police increases in subsequent years, you know, can't exceed that 30% ratio. This is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, it's a number that seems to have come out of nowhere. Like why pick the ratio from 2022 over any other year or over a 10-year average or something? That seems a bit strange to me. In theory, it limits the police budget. So if, you know, council says we're in a time of austerity, we can't increase spending, we have to ask all of our civic departments to cut back. In theory, it means the police also then have to cut back because they can't exceed that ratio, we can't increase them. But that also has a flip side to that, right? Which is that if we increase spending in our operational budget, we almost guarantee an increase over on the police side. Council doesn't, with this cap, have the ability to say, you know, we're going to increase a whole bunch of money to our operational departments, but not to the Edmonton Police Service. And I think that's a problem and is one of the things that uh, council has asked for more information about how they might be able to tweak that. Okay, so this sounds like a lot of technical jargon, and I can definitely see why city councillors were upset about not having enough time to review and fully understand this formula before it came to council. We covered that two episodes previous. Having two weeks to think about this and understand what was going on, did anything else come up that we, that we missed? I think the thing that stood out to me about this decision and the subsequent two weeks is that I feel like it has opened the door for Mayor Sohi to be more openly critical of both the police budget and the police commission. I think he was a little bit reserved about that previously. He originally indicated that he wanted to go the surface uh, service package route. He's now talked about you know, how he thinks a funding formula is the right way to go. But he voted against 
approving this funding formula for next year. He said at the meeting that he thinks $407 million is more than enough money for the police for next year. He then has been in the media quite a bit after that decision, calling the police commission model outdated. And, you know, in his first year uh, anniversary interviews, talking about how the ability of council to limit the amount of money that goes to police and to provide the kind of accountability the public requires is, is really limited. They don't have the ability to do that. So I feel like it really allowed the mayor to maybe solidify his position and feel more confident coming out and talking about it. Of course, I think it probably also helped that the uh, head of the Edmonton Police Association, our good friend of the podcast, maybe he'll even take over from John D., uh, <laughs> Michael Elliott, uh, he sent a very nasty letter to uh, Mayor Sohi demanding that Sohi come to events that he wasn't invited to. Yeah. You know, just this kind of crazy trying to make it look like council and the mayor are out to get the police. And the mayor has been pretty consistent in his messaging over the last two weeks that he thinks they have enough money. He thinks they need better accountability, but he has great respect for all of the men and women who serve. I'll say one of the criticisms I've levied against Sohi in the past is that he doesn't have the sort of fight that I like in my politicians. I, I like mm. a little bit of drama. I like a little bit of mudslinging. Uh, it makes for good podcast episodes. <laughs> but uh, one of the advantages of Sohi's very non-confrontational, collaborative, happy guy approach is that it really makes him very difficult to attack. When people like Michael Elliott of the Police Association say that Sohi is treating the police with open contempt and disrespecting every officer, it's very easy to have that rhetoric completely slide off as nonsensical. So if that's attacked or if that's just his personality, it's working for him, at least on this file. I wish you were done with police things, but Mac, I saw a few tweets from you this week talking about the slew of articles reposting a police press release about five unrelated shootings. And I think we got to talk about this. Yeah, I just wanted to briefly mention this, right? So the police put out this news release on Wednesday, October 19th, talking about how there were multiple shootings over a three-day period. So over the you know, October 14th weekend, they said there was five shootings that they had to deal with. There was a staff sergeant in the news release who was quoted. He said, quote, we are surprised and thankful that there were not more injured parties, end quote, talking about these five shootings. This is part of what the police service does. This is part of what every police service does. They put out news releases like this, you know, under the guise of informing the public and keeping them informed. But if you look at the things that they tend to make news releases about, it's the things that get people feeling uneasy. Five shootings in a weekend sounds horrible. We really need police to look after us. That kind of thing. You won't see a news release that says there were five break and enters on yesterday at three o'clock or whatever, because that's not going to create the same level of fear in the public. So that's not a surprise. It's also perhaps not a surprise that in the current context of mainstream media cut to the bone, that we often just see news releases like this basically rewritten and published. And that's what we got so far from both Post Media, Global News, and, and CTV Edmonton. All of them basically just rewriting the press release without any additional context. And to me, the most important context on this one, Troy, is that, you know, the police here, the police are talking about how there's five shootings, there's a huge amount of danger to the public, they're so grateful that no one else was injured. And not one of these articles mentioned that earlier this year, Edmonton police themselves shot and killed an innocent bystander. It would seem to me like that is pretty important context when they're trying to drum up fear 
about the danger of guns in our city. Edmonton police have killed multiple people in Edmonton this year that's not mentioned in any of these breathless copaganda stories. And that kind of makes me mad. Why then don't you write a letter to the editor? Post Media seems to be publishing letters from anyone these days. Oh, don't get me started on the letters. It's irresponsible to be publishing those things. You know, the people that... Uh, this Okay, this is going to be a horrible generalization, right? But lots of the folks who read the newspaper have been reading the newspaper for a long time. And if it's in the newspaper, it's fact to them. And they don't care that it's in a letter. And the number of things that I see in the letter section that are just, you know, unquestioned, horribly wrong, completely not based in reality is shocking. You know, I browse Instagram or Facebook and I see little messages like, this is a, this post is about COVID-19, get the facts on COVID-19. I feel like we need that in the letter section. Well, of course, with budget coming up, when you put aside the police, one of the other huge budget items we pay for every year in Edmonton is the Neighborhood Renewal Program, which is currently on track to achieve the goal of having no neighborhoods rated in either poor or very poor conditions by 2038. So it sounds back like we've done it. Are we done? Can we stop paying for neighborhood renewal now? <laughs> well, council might want to do that because of the difficulty of this budget and how little money there is to go around. This report from administration on the neighborhood renewal program suggests that maybe because we are where we are in that program, we're on track to, as you say, by 2038, have our neighborhoods in pretty good condition. Maybe we can take some of that money, and administration recommends maybe 25 to 35 percent, and put it towards other types of renewal. So that would, if they did that, it would delay that goal by another six to 10 years, but it would give us maybe 150 to more than $200 million for renewal of, you know, other pretty critical infrastructure. There's a really, really big gap, according to administration, in terms of how much money we have for maintenance and renewal of infrastructure, something like $10.3 billion required over the next 10 years. And we only have about 6.7 for capital investment. So $4 billion at least, and it's probably quite a bit higher than that, that they need to find somewhere else. When I saw this, I thought, well, I guess this would help. <laughs> it's not a huge percentage of the $4 billion gap, but it does go somewhere. Could be possible that this is a smart decision to be made. But of course, the previous councils that brought the Neighborhood Renewal Program in in the first place were undoing a similar decision like this from the past, where council was not allocating money toward renewal of neighborhoods. It wasn't paying for the upkeep of important infrastructure. So I think it'd be pretty surprising if that happened. And indeed, Councillor Andrew Knack this week said there's no chance that he would vote for any sort of reduction or delay to uh, the Neighborhood Renewal Program. Of course, this entire proposal is sort of just keeping the quiet part quiet. It's acknowledging that there's a huge infrastructure funding gap, and there's a talk about delaying the end date of the Neighborhood Renewal Program, which, once again, I'll remind you, to achieve the goal of having no neighborhoods rated in either poor or very poor condition. It's not saying that neighborhoods are in good condition. No. It's just <laughs> to get us out of poor. We are being bankrupted by urban sprawl, and this item is a very clear example of that. There's a $4 billion infrastructure funding gap. And all the while, we are still building new neighborhoods knowing that we cannot afford to build them. So if I was hoping for anything this budget cycle, it would be maybe an acknowledgement of that and some material action. Yeah, one of the things that stood out to me, Troy, about this is that the suggestion from administration on what they might do, you know, if council decided to free up this money, they have this other renewal money, what would they use it for? And they suggested dedicated renewal funds for facilities, bridges, and transit. 
Where's the road renewal fund? How, why don't we call out the specific amount of the tax increase that goes toward roads every single year? That is one of those hidden expenses that doesn't get enough attention, doesn't get highlighted. We hear all the time about how much money we spend on bike lanes. Let's attach the percentage increase for roads to that increase every year. Of course, council had big dreams to build this urban utopia that we talk of, and we called it Blatchford. Unfortunately, this week, it came to light that maybe Blatchford isn't quite meeting the goals that we had set out for it. Yeah, I mean, we knew already that Blatchford was way behind schedule, and Councillor Tim Cartmel has been one of the most vocal critics of the project and questioned earlier this year why, you know, more of the housing units that were supposed to have been built by now haven't been built. And, you know, we have got another update this week at Council, talked about how the original estimates for market demand and for how quickly development might happen were, quote, too aggressive in hindsight. So the council obviously talked a bit about that. But the other big thing that stood out to me was the discussion about affordability. Councillor Adjunak at the meeting noted that the average home price at Blatchford is $650,000. And he said, quote, is this going to be an urbanist Glenora, essentially, a spot that no regular person can afford to live in? End quote. So he was raising this discussion. Several other councillors were also really concerned about the affordability of Blatchford. And if we're building this thing that nobody will be able to buy into because it's too expensive to live there. All of this sounds very good on its face. I mean, I too think we should have more affordable housing. I too think that we should have an urban utopia. Uh, unfortunately, while Tim Cartmel has raised the example of maybe $650,000 isn't affordable, both him and UDI seem to indicate that a solution to this problem is to allow single-family homes to be built in Blatchford. Blatchford right now only allows multi-family dwelling, like townhouses. That's not a solution to the affordability problem. Yeah, I think several councillors pointed out that, you know, in other areas of the city, average home prices are quite a bit lower. And maybe if we allowed them to buy single family homes, it'd be cheaper for builders. They'd be able to do it more quickly. It would make it more affordable. But that really goes against the original goals that the city had in closing the city center airport and going forward with the Blatchford project in the first place. So I don't think it's just about more homes as quickly as possible. I think it's about shepherding the development of this project forward while still trying to achieve as many of those sustainability goals as we originally had. I'm just going to put a hot take out there. Is it a bad thing if Blatchford is an urbanist Glenora? The problem with Glenora is Carruthers' caveat that there's these massive houses in the core of the city that we cannot build more sustainable, dense development on. I don't have a problem with rich people living sustainably. If the alternative is a rich person living in a McMansion on the outskirts of the city, commuting via our roads, complaining about bike lanes, or a rich person living in Blatchford and riding their bike to work downtown, I'll take the latter. That's a win for the city. Rich people can still live here too. And I would rather them live in a way that doesn't cause climate catastrophe. You should have spoken at council, Troy. <laughs> That's a take that maybe they haven't quite heard. I think, you know, if they can build this the way that we're trying to build all of our neighborhoods with a diverse mix of people who live there, including options for more affordable housing, that would ultimately be the best thing. But maybe you're right. Not so bad if a bunch of rich people live in the center of the city. Of course, if I was speaking to council, I wouldn't be speaking about Blatchford. I would be speaking about the solar rebate program, which has maxed out as of September 2nd. Uh, but Councillor Tim Cartmel gave some solace this week that perhaps it will be renewed. Yeah, I don't know where he's coming from with that positivity, but he said to you, Troy, basically, just be a little patient. 
How does that feel as someone who's been trying to get this loan for quite some time? It's not a loan. This is a Sorry, rebate. rebate. Oh. Yes, rebate. The the loan is a separate thing from the federal government, which I did get approved for this week. Nice. It only took an additional 50 days after I applied and just enough time for the city of Edmonton rebate to completely fill up and such that I can't get solar panels. So podcast listeners who are tracking my solar saga, if you too want to build solar, just get your ducks in a row now in the winter because believing that the federal government can do something quickly was a hope and dream that I naively had and I have been punished for that belief. Well, hopefully Cartmel pulls through for you and we get some money in the uh, budget for next year for solar rebates. Let's just be honest. You're asking where Cartmel's optimism comes from here. This is a solar rebate program that a good third of Edmonton's energy usage comes from residential house usage. Uh, So either turning on your lights and stoves and heating and that sort of thing. For a council that's so focused on climate, and we've seen it in their election platforms and in their responses to the Taproot survey, they believe that we need to do more to combat climate change. A program as wildly successful as this solar rebate program, I think it would be absurd on its face to assume that they're like, you know what? Nah, let's skip it. Let's throw it in the garbage. I have so much hope and so much belief that it will come back and maybe even come back better than before. Maybe I'm just cynical, but you know, I think they're going to get into this budget and see the list of things they have that are in front of them to approve and might feel okay to cut the thing that solves the problem that is down the road versus the thing that we run into and hear about every day. Though, if that was the case, Andrew Knack might have cut neighborhood renewal, but he said never in a million years. (laughs) Well, good. He's one vote. We've got one. (laughs) Uh, One suggestion I might have for Edmonton City Council, if they want to get all this done, is make like a podcast and pick up a sponsor. Let's tell you about Pod Power. With Pod Power, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, the Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a Pod Power shout out to... Overdue Finds, an Edmonton Public Library podcast. Bryce Cretenden and Caroline Land host conversations about books, movies, music, pop culture, and other interesting news about Edmonton. It's a great way to learn more about what's happening at EPL and about how you can use your library card to access all of EPL's in-person and online services. To listen and find out more about Overdue Finds, head to epl.ca slash podcast or look it up wherever you get your podcasts. Smack, I want to end this episode by just issuing a couple quick clarifications. The first one for something that I said a mere minute ago. (laughs) When I said that city council could pick up a sponsor, I feel like I was inadvertently supporting the selling of naming rights of rec centers to corporations. I was not doing that. I wouldn't do that. And I apologize for the confusing nature of my statements, dear listener. And on that note, I do have to issue a clarification. In a previous episode, we were talking about the rec center naming costs. Uh, We had talked about how much money we were getting. And we had noted that Michael Jans had said to CTV News at one point that it was $450,000 for some set of rec centers. And I inquired to you, Mac, quote, did Michael Jans just secret airplane the rec center costs, end quote. Right. A listener who might not be familiar with a secret airplane as a verb could have thought that I was saying that Michael Jans was doing a disservice 
to the community, that he was giving away confidential information or that he was acting unfaithfully to the city of Edmonton employees. And I just want to clear that up by formally defining the word secret airplane. Secret airplane is a verb and it means to reveal information not widely known to the public in an innocuous fashion without breaking existing confidence agreements or policies. So tune in in subsequent weeks when we will secret airplane all the council news that you want to hear, dear listener. Looking forward to it. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.